This morning, I want to look at specifically the theme overall is really dealing with the issue of true confidence. And I don't know about you, what kind of confidence you have. I, I will just uh, be quick to confess, I don't have a whole lot of confidence in myself. I can be prideful and think that I can do a lot of stuff and figure things out my own, and I can be very independent at times. But in reality, when I stop and think, I realize, you know what, I don't really have a lot of confidence in my own abilities. I don't know about you, if you feel very confident, um, I think as men, we um, on the outside are unbelievably confident and we can do it and we can find it on our own. But internally, we're unbelievably insecure. And uh, and so you can elbow your uh, husband, ladies, um, or just look at a man in an evil way. Uh, because that's just true. We uh, we act like we got to figure it out, but on the inside, we uh, we don't have a clue what we're doing. Just don't tell anybody. Um, you know, so it's kind of fake it till you make it, right? What kind of confidence do you have? And when you think about confidence, I was just I just perused the uh, World Wide Web for just a moment, and here's some of the images that uh, came to mind pretty quickly. Uh, here's here's one. I believe in me. I believe in me. Another one. I can't do it. No, no. I can do it. You know, cutting out the T. Can, can't. Uh, you seen that one before? You can do it. I mean, you can do this. You can do this. You can. That's it. And then how about this confidence? What is it? It is something you create within yourself by believing in who you are. Confidence is something you create in yourself by believing who you are. In fact, we're told for as far as parenting, I mean, you know, one of the biggest deals for parents is to make sure that you are developing and, and building in your child confidence, okay? And, and a sense of ability and a sense of um, of security and knowing that they can do whatever. I mean, the sky's the limit. They can do whatever they want to do. They can do it. And, and there's not totally bad, but it's also certainly not totally right either. You know, that... I mean, you, you don't want your kids to grow up just being beat down. You're just a dirty, wretched little troll. At the same time, we don't want to fill our, our, our kids' heads and just create a bunch of little narcissists thinking that they're the center of the universe, um, you know, like that they would go around, I don't know, taking selfies all the time and thinking that everybody really cares about what they their moment moment status and wants to know what they ate and what it looks like and what their quiet time would look like if they were actually reading their Bibles and not taking pictures of their whole setup of their Bible and, you know, and those things. And, and, uh, you know, there's a problem, but you know, when you talk about confidence, um, again, we want everybody to believe in themselves, to know that they can do it, that they have the power within them to overcome. And you can, you could do it. And it's really about you and what makes you happy and what, but at the same time, if you say, you know what, I'm confident in Jesus, I'm confident in God's word. I'm confident. Well, that is an arrogant thing to be, you know, that is offensive that we would suggest that we could be confident in God's word. See, confidence truly defined is feelings and belief that one can rely on someone or something with a firm trust. What is it that you can really rely on? What is it that you can really put your trust and you believe in that really you can have a firm trust in? And that's where if it's myself, I'm not really trusting in that. If it's humanity, no, I don't really have a Firm trust. Well, the government, they'll take care of, we just need to get the right people and then they'll, yeah, yeah. You evidently aren't a historian and don't read historical books. That's just not gonna happen. Okay, we live in a fallen world and, uh, you entrust 
all the power to other people and it's that's not going to fix anything. So where do we look for confidence? Well, I think we can look to God's word and to God. And that's where this passage uh, leads us is into an understanding of that. So what is it that we can have firm trust in? Well, true confidence can be found in Christ. But in, in summary, true confidence is found in fully trusting in Jesus for salvation in this life and in the next. I think if we boil down these verses that close out this letter, and, and really the whole book for that matter, the whole letter, it is, it is simply saying that our true confidence, if you, the, the one thing that we can firmly trust in, I mean, there's a lot of things you can firmly trust in, but the one place that is safe to put your firm trust, your, it's safe to put your, all of your belief and your hopes in, is in Jesus for your salvation, not just in this life, but in the life to come. And not just in the life to come, but in this life. Today and tomorrow and eternity present. To, to unpack that concept a little more theologically, it's a good statement to remember. Jesus has saved us from the penalty of sin. That's called justification. That's past tense salvation. He has also saved us from the power of sin. That's present tense. Or better, maybe it'd be better to say he is saving us from, because that's present tense. He is saving us from the power of sin and will one day save us from the presence of sin. That's going to be in the future. So past tense salvation, justification, present tense salvation. That's the process called sanctification, where he's making us holy on the outside to, to look like we really are on the inside through Christ. And again, that's what I've talked about in core values, that the gospel is what's changing us. Not my ability to be more like Jesus by my own self-efforts, because I can't save myself. I can't justify myself. can't save myself from the penalty of sin. But I also can't save myself from the power of sin. And so I need Jesus to save me. I need Jesus daily saving me. And my only hope for eternity is that in the future that I can look that Jesus will one day save me, not only from sin's penalty, not only from its power, but from its presence. And he will give me a glorified body and I will spend eternity with him. And my hope of eternal life is simply and fully in Jesus Christ, in Jesus alone, not myself. I have no confidence in myself to save me, to be saving me or to save me in the future. I have no confidence in myself. So looking at this passage, beginning in verse 13, he takes all of verses 1 through 12, and in conclusion of those, he summarizes them and says, I write these things. In fact, tells us, here's the point of the whole letter. Let me tell you why I wrote the whole letter. I wrote these things so that to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. He's written these things so that we would know that we have eternal life. Not hope, not think, not wonder, not be optimistic, okay? Not be hopeful, not be wishful, but I mean, he wrote these things in this book because evidently John, by the inspiration of God's Spirit, thinks that we can be confident, I mean like 100% Able to know that we know God. Is that an amazing thought? 
if, the, if we were to have a little pre-sermon test, and I was to ask you to log in and maybe you know send a uh, confidential um, answer, and we were to ask everybody, how confident are you that if you died today that you would go to heaven? How confident are you in your salvation? If you died right now, or on the way home, or whatever, that, that you would spend eternity with the Lord Jesus, God, in heaven. How confident are you in that? I, I think we would be surprised. I think there'd be many in this room that would probably say, I'm pretty confident. I mean, I, I'm, I'm pretty confident. Or, I don't know. I mean, I was confident last week, but this week I really didn't really do good. And my focus wasn't good, and I made some mistakes, and I did some things. And so, I don't... I, I don't know this week. Or uh, maybe you I, be all over the map. The second question to follow that up is, okay, well, what, what are you basing that on? I mean, what, what's your trust in? If you think you're 50% sure or 75 or 85 or 99% sure, you're not 100%, but you're 99. What are you basing that confidence? What is your confidence in to give you that assurance, whatever degree you have assurance? And so the question is, can you be 100% sure and, and then secondly, what is it that gives us that insurance? What is our what is our confidence in? And that's what he's trying to tell us. He's telling us, yes, you can know. And here's what how you know it. This is how you can be confident in your salvation. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God. He's writing to believers to give them a confidence. To believe in the name means it's not just that you may... I like the name of Jesus. That's my team. I like Jesus' name. He just has a really cool name. And I like it. And so I'm... To say you believe in Jesus' name is to say you believe in the person of Jesus and who He is, what He's done. It's to believe in all of who He represents. And so, you know, it's important to know who Jesus is and, and to have a clear understanding of that. And, and then to know him, he's writing these things that we know that we have eternal life. And that, that knowledge is a settled confidence. It's not just a flippant, hopeful, you know, subjective, uh, surface knowledge. Uh, he's talking about, I mean, like, I'm, I'm really, I don't really, I don't have trouble sleeping at night. I mean, I lay my head on the pillow and I know if I die, then I'm with Jesus. It's, it's, it's what Trey and Megan can, can go to the other side of the world and as much as they are, um, you know, concerned about safety, they can also go with a settled confidence that, man, they're good. Not that, the, not that they might make it back alive, but that they know that they're exactly where God wants them to be, and they're doing what God wants to be, and nothing is going to happen to them outside of God's sovereign will and plan for their lives. And certainly, whatever does, ha- if something bad does happen, you know what, God has secured their salvation. I mean, you don't drive on the roads that they drive on if you haven't figured this one out, if you're not solidified on your you know, your confidence in the gospel. But they have a settled confidence, not a flippant surface knowledge. Man, they have a settled confidence. In what? In the name of the Son of God, of Jesus. And let me give you a couple quick verses to help you clarify this. Um, John 10 or 20. In fact, turn to John 3. The Gospel of John Chapter 3, John 3, 16 specifically. So you're going to go back to the left. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, fourth fourth book there. And But while you're flipping there, let me show you. John 20, 31 says, But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. You may have life in His name. So that you may believe 
that Jesus is the son of God and that by believing you may have life in his what? In his name. So name, person, same thing. He's saying, again, uh, this is also seen in John chapter 1, verses 12 to 13. But all who have received him, the person who believed in his name, the person, have he gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood or the will of the flesh nor the will of man but of god god has born them again they've been they have a new life they've been born again uh through his name and through the person same thing and then john three sixteen. specifically i want to direct your attention to verse 18 but i want to give you the context in in this it says this for god so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. But but then the verse continues. Actually, I don't know if you knew that, but a lot of people don't realize that there's actual verses before and after John three sixteen. Um, you know, it's you think they'd know that, but it's like they, nobody ever put the whole chapter on the signs at the football games when it, you could do that. You know, you could put signs at football games of scripture. Now I think it's illegal. But verse seventeen, for God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world. But in order that the world might be saved through him, whoever believes in him is not condemned. Whoever believes in Jesus is not condemned. Whoever does not believe is condemned already. Why? Because he has not believed in in what? In the name. He has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. What does that mean? That means that believing in Jesus and his name are synonymous, number one. Number two, it means that believing in Jesus and his name are critical to be saved. That's what that means. And it means to not believe in Jesus and all of who he is, is to reject him and to be condemned. So if somebody's believing in a Jesus other than the Jesus that is revealed in God's word, then then their confidence is in a false Jesus. Okay? It's a, it's a false Jesus. That Jesus is unable to save them. And so that, that, that's a problem. How do we have confidence in Jesus? What does it mean to have true confidence? True confidence. True faith in a post-truth world. How do we have true confidence about our true faith? What does that look like? Well, these, these verses give us some detail. And so moving down to verse 14, he says this. Let's just, we're going to go through the rest of the text and just look at the truths that are revealed to us in, in these verses. But this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything to his, according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, then we know that we have the request that we have asked of him. We know that we have the request that we have asked of him. And so the first thing we learn about our true confidence in Christ, the significance of of knowing that we have eternal life, it gives us true confidence in that we know that we are. We're confident because God answers prayers. So one of the reasons we have true confidence is because we're confident because we know that God answers prayers. God answers prayers. And this, this confidence is that, that we have towards Him. This is the confidence we have towards Him that if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. And if we know that He hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request that we have asked of him. Now, what is prayer? Well, prayer is simply talking to God. That's that's what prayer is. It's talking to God. Not 
complicated. We make it real complicated. So how are you supposed to pray? Is it a certain language? Is it certain you have to have, do you have to kind of these and thous? Does it have to be in a um, old English, uh, you know, King James-y kind of phraseology? Does God, does he honor those prayers better? Um, does it, do you have to have a certain posture? Do you have to serve? Just prayer is talking to God. Okay. You know, that, that's pretty much it. I don't know that there's a wrong way to talk to God. You just talk to God and that's prayer. But you might say, well, okay, if it's simply talking to God, well, what's the goal of talking to God? What do we, what do we pray? Well, for most people, prayer, this is for, for most people in the world. Okay. And, and I would argue for many nominal Christians, many professing Christians, Prayer is the way that we get our heavenly kind of Santa Claus to bid our will and lavish us with gifts and answers to our requests. What we the purpose of prayer is to get our heavenly sugar daddy, Santa Claus, whatever to gift us with answers, gift us with the things that we think we need and to lavish us with um, with gifts and to answer the requests that we have of him. And we, we know this to be true because because we know that God, this is the way the world would, would look at God. God is the version of the world that, that is, I mean, the version of God that's popular among many, even who profess to know Jesus, is that God is a nice, all loving, you know, heavenly father, teddy bear. And, you know, we know that because he's nice and all loving and we know that we, I know what my greatest needs are more than anybody else. I mean, I know what I really need. I mean, he doesn't know what I need. I know what I need. I don't need God to tell me what I know what I need. And so because God's loving and nice and, you know, and, and I, I'm the ultimate authority on what I really need, then we know that God's going to certainly give us whatever we want, right? And when he doesn't, well, that is unacceptable. And now, wait a minute. I mean... I don't know that there is a God. If there is, I mean, I'm struggling with it because, you know, this is the way we think. Because because God didn't answer my request for this or for that or for this thing or for that thing. And we, we get really upset. If God's so good and so loving, then why wouldn't he have... If God's so good and so loving and so powerful, then why didn't he... If God's so... If he really cares about... If he really loved me, if there really was a God and he really loved me, then he would have... Our faith in God begins to diminish because he doesn't answer prayers based upon what we want. And we say, it says if we ask anything that we know he's going to do it. No, it doesn't say that. It says that we can be confident that if we ask anything according to his will, and that's the key phrase there. The, the goal of prayer is not bending God into our will. The goal of prayer is not to bend God into our will, but God bending ours, our wills, our wills in alignment with his. The goal of prayer is not us bending God's will to align with ours. But it is the means by which God bends our will to align with his. You say, well, how do you know that? Well, who do you think would be the greatest person to look to as an example of prayer? I don't know, maybe Jesus would be a good one. Jesus actually gave us an example of a prayer for us to pray. He said, when you pray, okay, here's how you should pray. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. He said, thy kingdom come, thy will, your kingdom come, God, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. 
holy and set apart be your name. Your kingdom, may your kingdom be done. On, on, may it be reflected on earth as it is in heaven. And then he goes on with some requests. And so Jesus said, the way we pray is by starting with, it's about God's kingdom and it's about God's will. You say, well, that's awesome that he talked about that. And that's a nice lesson for prayer. But I mean, really, practically speaking, is that really how we pray? Yeah, Jesus actually, you know, he actually believed the things he taught. And so um, we know that in the Garden of Gethsemane, I know you've had some desperate situation. I know you've been in some trouble. I know there's been some burden, some really serious prayers. And I'm not saying that facetiously or sarcastically. I know that all of us have had, like, I'm sure there's been moments in your life. And if there hasn't, they will come where it is a desperate situation and you're looking to God in prayer to come through. And he doesn't always come through in the way that we think he should. But we know that Jesus was in the most desperate situation that any of us can begin to comprehend where he knew he knew what was about to happen to him. He didn't know what the options were. He didn't know what could happen. He knew what was going to happen. And he looked to the father in prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane so intensely that he was sweating drops of blood because of the agony and the intensity of his prayer. And in the midst of that, a couple different versions of that, but in Luke 22, verse 42 specifically, here's how it lays out. It says, he says, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. He's speaking of the cup of the wrath of God. If you're willing, please take this cup away from me. And then he says, but nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Jesus shows us the purpose of prayer is God's will. We, we can pray confidently. We can pray confidently when we are praying according to God's will. But we need to pray carefully knowing that. And it doesn't mean I don't say pray carefully as in make sure you get the wording right. It's just be careful knowing that. As you're praying, it's really not about what you want. It's about what God wants. Now, God is not worried and not upset and not concerned with you getting the phraseology right. Okay, as you talk to him and spend time with him, he will get you there. He'll get you to where you need to go. If your heart is willing and submissive and yielding to him, he'll get you there. So don't don't be like, I can't I can't talk to God yet because I'm not ready because I'm not really willing for his will. You know, talk to him about that, too. He, he can handle it. He'll get you there. All right. Just just start wherever you're at. Start there in the conversation with God. OK, and you're going to get to where you need to be a whole lot faster. And so we can pray confidently because we know that he is able and, and he will do what he says he will do according to his will. But secondly, we can also pray carefully. We should pray carefully, knowing that every true prayer. Is a variation of the theme Thy will be done. Every true prayer is a variation of the theme Thy will be done. And you just always kind of just think about that in your prayers. Jesus in the garden. It's not my will. It's yours, God. It's not my will, but it's yours that needs to be done. Another thought, J.C. Ryle said this, Prayer is the very life breath of true religion. Prayer is the very life breath of true religion, or we might say today, True faith, legitimate faith. He goes on to say, where when there is much private communion with God, your soul will grow like grass after rain. When there is much private communion, when you're talking to God a lot in in private in prayer, 
your your soul is going to grow like grass with the rain. And when there is little, all will be at standstill and you will barely keep your soul alive. You know, there's times where we just feel dry spiritually and we just feel like, man, I, I just and I, I don't. It's not a fruitful time. I just don't feel like God's coming through like I think he should. And And sometimes God in growing us is right there. And he is, man, he is all there. But he is growing us by not manifesting his presence in a way that we would like. And he's trusting us to walk with him by faith and not by sight. But sometimes it's dry because we're not really talking to God. And, and the reason what we're weary and we feel like it's so dry and the feel of things are so, is because we're really not letting God talk to us because we're not in the Word and we're not talking to God in prayer. And so there's not a lot of fruit and flourishing and our souls feel like they're withering and close to dying because we're not doing anything to nourish them. And if we would spend time praying confidently and carefully, just get along with God, it, it, we, there would be some nourishment that would happen. We are confident because God answers prayers. Secondly, we're confident because God restores those in sin. We're confident because God restores those in sin. Now, this gets a little crazy here. But he says this. If anyone sees his brother sinning, committing a sin, not leading to death, he shall ask and God will give him life. If anybody sees a brother committing a sin, not leading to death, he shall ask and God will give him life. So those who commit sins that do not lead to death, there is sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that, but all wrongdoing is sin, but there is a sin that leads that does not lead to death. There is sin that does not lead to death. What in the world is he talking about? Well, this is complicated and we don't have time to completely uh chase all the possible scenarios. And there's a lot of different things and moving parts to get this. And this is where we gain our understanding. The best um, commentary on the Bible is the Bible. And so if you want to interpret a passage that looks a little unclear and you're like, what is he talking about? A sin that leads unto death or a sin? What is he? What is that about? Then you go to other scriptures and you build an understanding of what that truth is that seems a little unclear based upon the other truths that are very clear. Okay, and so what do we know about this? Well, we can be confident that God restores those in sins. He says, if you see a brother, see a person that professes to know Christ and they're in sin, what do you do? You pray for them. Why why do you pray? Because they need it. (laughs) They need it. And you pray for them. Some of you have kids that have walked away from God. Some of you have friends that have walked away. Some of you have family members that have walked away from God. They profess to know Christ, but then they're living a life that's inconsistent with what they have professed to know. What do you do? Pray for them. You pray that God will save them. And what does he mean that God will give them life? Is he talking about that God's not gonna, that he's not gonna kill them? And when he says a sin leading to death, is he talking about them dying physically? I don't think so. I think he's talking about based upon the context of the whole letter, He's talking about eternal life, not just like temporal life. And and is he saying, is he implying that it's possible for a believer to lose their salvation, their future salvation, and lose the ability to go to heaven because they sin and they are rejected? Is it possible for somebody to be rejected and sent away from, to, to be an apostate and to... Um, to know Christ and then turn away from Christ and then lose their salvation. Is that 
possible. And I would say, based upon the illumination and the clearness of all of the Word of God and much of, uh, especially the New Testament, even the Old Testament, I would say unequivocally, without hesitation, no, it is not possible. It's not possible. In fact, he says throughout this book a bunch of times, if you know Jesus, you will not continue indefinitely in sin. If you know Jesus, then you will, you know, you're going to, you're going to, um, you're going to make it to the end. Okay. If you're going to persevere to the end, that's the doctrines of the perseverance of the saints. If you're a legitimate follower of Christ, you will persevere to the end. But people will look at this verse and they'll say, well, that's an evidence that you, you can lose yourself. No, it's not. It is not that. If it is that, well, then I've got news for you. Uh, Hebrews chapter 6 is another verse that gives us some clarity as to what it says. Hebrews chapter 6, verses 4 through 5, verse 4. It is impossible to restore again to repentance those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and the powers of the age to come. If they then fall away, they reject. If they are like these people in First John who have deserted the true gospel and they have rejected the true Christ and they've gone teaching new things, if they are like that and they go out from us, John, first John chapter two says they went out from us because they were not of us. And he's saying those people, it's impossible for them. They have possibly committed a sin unto death and those you can pray for them. And I'm not telling you not to pray for them. I'm just telling you, you can pray all you want. It's not going to change anything. That's what he's saying. And, and so he's saying that they have left, they've deserted. And here in Hebrews chapter six, I think he's talking about the same kind of people, different group. But here's what he says. It's impossible to restore them again to repentance since they once were enlightened, having tasted of the heavenly gift and having shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come if they then fall away since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. Four, land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those who whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. So if let's just assume that we are a land here, okay? And we all represent seeds that have been planted. And God has blessed all of us by allowing the the water of his word to wash over all of us. He has moved with his Holy Spirit among us in ways that he has helped us understand that the gospel is not just the way in, but it's the way we grow. And we've understood great truths about about who Jesus is and what he has done and how he is, uh, how he can save us and how he is saving us. And we've grown in these things together. We've all been nourished together. God has even been moving in our hearts it is possible that even in a place where God's word is being lifted up and we're being washed by that, the Holy Spirit is even opening eyes and they're seeing and nourishing and growing and things are going on. It is possible that there can be in the same room wheat and tares. What he's saying, because he because he finishes the illustration, he says. Again, verse seven, for land that has drunk the rain often falls on it, produces a crop useful for those who have 
whose sake it has been cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed and its end is to be burned. What is, what is he saying? I, I believe what he's saying is there are people that are going to hear God's word taught. I mean, and, and there's going to be conviction. The Holy Spirit is going to work in their hearts and is going to be convicting them of the truth of the gospel and they're going to be wrestling with it. And that, But he, interesting, even in Hebrews 6, he says this, they've once been enlightened and they have tasted of the heavenly gift. They have shared in the Holy Spirit. Tasted. I mean, they have, they've sampled it. Okay? But they never swallowed it. They never digested it. Okay? You can eat good stuff all day long, but if you spit it out before you are able to swallow it, digest it, it's really not going to help you, you know? I mean, you can take some medicine and put it in your mouth and swish it around and then spit it out and it's not going to help you. In fact, it might make things worse because it could make you, uh, you know, more susceptible to whatever the sickness is that's hurting you, right? And so these are people that have been around. They've, they've tasted, they've observed, they've watched, they've, and then they say, you know what? I'm rejecting this and I'm going a different path. He's saying those who have tasted, they've seen, they've been so close and just on the verge of following Christ, but have gone back to legalism, gone back to the world worldliness, gone back to some other false belief in Christ. It's impossible for them to be renewed into salvation again. God has been so gracious to put them in an environment where they could be blessed and nourished by the rain and the water and by the, his goodness, his common grace. And yet they have rejected them. And now we're looking at them and we, we see thorns and thistles growing up. And so now we know who they really are. And the reason there's thorns and thistles, they're not of us. Uh, they're not with us because they're not of us. They've walked away and they, and they, and it's not that they lost anything. It's that they never had it. I mean, what's down in the wells come up in the bucket. What was below the surface of the soil now that there's been some time to see the, the fruit of that is we realize they're, it's, they're not wheat. Yeah, they're, they're not, they're not part of the family of God. And so you, we have to be really careful for us who have grown up in the Bible belt. We've heard so much truth that we could be inoculated from the truth and get to the point where we've heard so much of it, we take it for granted, we neglect it, and we walk away from it, just thinking, now nah, I'm just going to reject. Be real careful. So what, what do we what do we do about that? Well, he says a few things uh, to think about. This Jesus actually referring to something many people I think is similar. He says that there is a blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. He says in Mark chapter three verse twenty eight. Truly I say to you, all sins are will be forgiven the children of man and whatever blasphemes they utter. But whoever blasphemes the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin, which is, means they're going to have an eternal death. That means hell. For they were saying he has an unclean spirit. They're saying the reason that the power that Jesus was healing people and the power that he was displaying was was demonic and not from God. And because they blasphemed, they misrepresented the power of God and his Holy Spirit. They have been condemned to hell because of that. All right. Not they're not losing their salvation. They didn't have it. And they misrepresented. They had the truth. They rejected the truth and they misrepresented God's truth. They are, it, 
I think, inconsistent with Hebrews chapter 6, it will be impossible for them to be renewed unto repentance again and consistent with 1 John. There is a sin that leads to death. And that's what I'm talking about. So so what do we do when we know people? First of all, you don't know who's where. Okay, If you know a brother and they're in sin, they might not be a brother or a sister. They might think they're brother and sister, but you don't know. You don't know. Okay, don't assume everybody that comes to church is a follower of Christ. Okay, and so and don't assume that just because you're in church you're a follower of Christ. I mean, do you know that you know Jesus? That's why we this book was written. I've written these things that you would know. That you have eternal life. Do you love God? Do you love his people? Do you keep his commandments? That's the proof text throughout the whole book. Do you love God? Do you love his people? Do you keep his commandments? Do you obey his commandments? Because if you don't, then you probably, you might not know Jesus. If you continue in sin and you don't have conviction, you might not know Jesus. So, so what do we, what do we do? If you have friends, family, people that you know that have walked away from God, pray for them. Pray that God would give them salvation. And we will know that if we ask something according to God's will, that He answers, He is able to save them. And until God exposes, reveals what is really true there, we just pray. We just pray for them. We know He is able to save them. He's also able to save us if we would confess. Some people want to say, you know what, I've messed up too much. I have sinned against God too much. He is unable to save me. I believe that I am one of these people. And it's impossible for me to be renewed unto repentance again. I'm done. God's cut me off forever. I can never be saved. You don't know that. You know, I mean, it says, whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Right? I mean, he says right here that if you see, uh, he says that it, about prayer, that, that we know that if we ask something according to his will, his will is that all would be saved and none would perish. That we know that we have the request with him. And so God is able to save if you are really truly to a point, if a person is really to the point where they cannot be renewed again to repentance, if they have been so close and they've rejected and they have spit in the face of Jesus on the cross, the the conviction of the Holy Spirit, they've blasphemed against God's spirit and they've rejected all of that. They will not be asking the question, can I be saved? They won't care. And if you're still asking, then, then, then today is the day of salvation. Jesus can save. His arm is not short that he cannot save. Too short. He can save. Today, you can have full confidence in that. Now, I knew that was going to take a lot longer than I hoped. Uh, we are confident because Jesus keeps us from sin. He goes on to say, <clears throat> verse 18, we know that Everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning. Based upon our position in with God in Jesus, you know who we are and whose we are. If if you've been born of God, born of God, you don't keep on sinning. And so we can be confident Jesus keeps us from sin because we've been born again. He's going to help us grow. We can also be confident because of our because of Jesus' power to protect us. He goes on to say. Verse 18, but he who has been born of God, it was referring, this is kind of confusing, but it's referring to Jesus there. But he who has been born of God protects him. And the evil one does not touch him. Jesus prayed in John chapter 17 for his followers then and forever in the future that uh, the father would keep his followers from the evil one. So he prayed that God would keep us from the evil one. So he's because of our position, because of our, our, we're in Jesus, we, we now have a new identity. We're of people of God and we belong to Jesus and Jesus has the power to protect us. We can be confident that he can keep us from sinning. You don't have to sin. 
Jesus is powerful enough to keep you from sinning. If you're a follower of Christ, you've been born again. He's given you a spirit. You don't have to keep it. You sin. If you sin, you sin because you choose to sin. It's not because you're too weak and God is too weak to save you and unable to save you. It, he, well, you are too weak. I am too weak. But God is powerful enough to save you. He is provided. If we sin, it's because we choose to not trust in his power. And then he says, we know that we are from God and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Even those who have rejected and deserted God and chased after false idols. And then fourthly, we are confident in the truth. Verse 20. We know that the son of God has come. So truth can be found in the person of Jesus. And truth also is the revelation of Jesus also is a revelation of truth. We know that the son of God has come and has given us understanding. He also says so that we may know him who is true. So, so three simple things there. Truth is found in the person of Christ. He said on the way, the truth, the life. We also know that Jesus is the revelation of truth, that he's given us understanding, he's opened our eyes to see, and that if we know him, then we know what is true. In knowing Jesus, we find truth. Sorry, I thought those were going up there. They weren't. There they are. Knowing Jesus, we find truth. And then we know to know Jesus is to be in him. It says we are in him who is true, in his son, Jesus Christ. So we know that we know him who is true and we know that we are in him who is true in the son, Jesus Christ. Last two things I want to hit for you and then we're done. Verse uh, the last part of this verse 20 says he is the true God in eternal life. We can be confident because our confidence is in Jesus, who is both God and eternal life. Jesus is both God and eternal life life. He is the true God. Who is the true God? Jesus is the true God, not just the son of God, not just a son of God, which Mormonism teaches. Jehovah Witnesses teach that's false teachings that are unable to save a person from their sins. Okay, because it's not the same Jesus. They're they're no more able to save Jesus, uh, save a person from their sins. It, when you change the Jesus you're believing in, then his name is not powerful enough to save you because it's not the same Jesus. It's a different Jesus, different name, different person. But the Jesus who is God and man, Jesus, he is the true God in eternal life who came to the earth. John says in first John one, he came, we touched him, we saw him, we observed him, we watched him. He was physical. He was here. He lived a physical life. He was sinless during his physical life, died on the cross, a physical death, buried in the grave, a physical burial, and then has been raised to walk in new life. And so we are confident because our confidence is in the Jesus who is both God and is he is eternal life. He doesn't have it. He doesn't just provide it, but he is eternal life. Eternal life is in him. Interesting point in the book of Revelation, when we go to heaven, we have a description of heaven. And it's really amazing because one of the things is there is no solar eclipse in heaven. Why? Because there's no moon and there's no sun. There's no sun. So I know you guys are pretty fired up about that. And I know you're thinking you're telling me I'm going to have eternity without a solar eclipse because I experienced a little bit of that last week. And it was pretty amazing. Those two minutes were really awesome. Am I? No, because there's no shadows in heaven. Why are there no shadows? Because because there's no 
set source for light because Jesus, God, is he illuminates heaven. There's no shadows. He illuminates it all. Why? Because eternal life is found in him. In him. He is eternal life. And then lastly, there's confidence to avoid the lies. Little children. It's the last the last verse from this letter. He says, little children, keep yourselves from idols. Keep yourself from idols. What does he mean? Is he talking about a specific idol? Is he talking about a specific thing? Was there a, a specific idol that was a problem? Could be. I don't think so. I think what he's referring to is in the book of Isaiah. And I'll just say this in summary. In the book of Isaiah, there is a description of idols. And a person that carves a piece of wood, cuts it in half, takes half, makes, cooks his lunch, and takes the other half, you know, like burns it to cook his lunch, takes the other half of wood, carves it into idol, and he says, does he not know that that thing that he holds in his hand is a lie? What is idolatry? We can certainly worship stuff. You can certainly worship carvings and things, yeah. But, but more than that, idolatry in every circumstance, whether it's a thing, whether it's stuff, whether it's a person, whether it's yourself, whatever it is, it's a lie. The, the thought that anything else can save you, sustain you, give you confidence, that's a lie. And so he says in the end of this, little children, look, my beloved people, I love you like my babies, like my children, I like my son, like my daughter, I love you and I want you to know. And you be careful, don't believe in the lies of this world, but have confidence in Jesus Christ. I'm praying that you will keep yourselves from actively, diligently, passionately, relentlessly keep yourself from lies. Best illustration of faith to me, and this is confusing for a lot of people. They just say, I just don't have enough faith. I don't have, you know, it's really not about your amount of faith. Faith is never an issue of how much. Faith is always about object. The focus of faith is always about objects. What Jesus said, if you just had the faith of a mustard seed, you could say this mountain move and it would move. If you just had an itty bitty tiny little bit of faith, you could, God would do, I could do amazing things if you just would trust in me in just a tiny bit. But you, you trust in other things and that's why you, there's no power. If, I, if I'm to step onto some ice, okay, its ability to hold me up is not about my faith. If I'm to step out right here, it doesn't matter how much I believe. What about this? What if I get you to believe with me that I can step right here, I can just step off the platform and I will not fall? Okay, let's all, let's just believe together that I can do it. Do you think that I can? No, it doesn't, you can, we can blindly believe whatever we want. It will not change the reality of what will happen gravitationally if I step off of this, I'm going to fall, Right? Doesn't matter what we believe. I believe God can. Well, no, I, again, that's believing in God to do what I want, not what he's going to do. And what he's going to do is watch me fall and learn that my faith in errant things is not going to save me, right? And so what is your faith in? Are you, you putting your faith in thin ice? Or are you putting your faith in the confidence that you can have in Jesus Christ, in the truth of his word? That is our only hope. Mm-hmm.